suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there, and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today, we introduce The War of Jenkins' Ear, Part 5, of what we hope will be a seven- or eight-part episodic adventure. It is the story of an 18th century version of the cobra versus the mongoose, like relationships between Spain and England. In 1713, a little bit of history here. In 1713, the Treaty of Utrecht was signed. It was a highly complicated, multifaceted agreement signed in stages between Spain, France, the Dutch, Great Britain, and the Holy Roman Empire, which was designed to define with you know, certainty, clarify, and settle the numerous competing, conflicting political and economic interests that divided all these world powers. And Great Britain, no surprise, at the bargaining table, they proved to be the primary beneficiary, the biggest winner at the bargaining table. Utrecht um, delineated that moment in time in which England became the clear-cut European commercial powerhouse. And in Article 10 of the Treaty of Utrecht, by which it was that article that Spain ceded the strategic ports of Gibraltar and Menorca to England and provided British merchants access to trading markets. They had trading rights in Spanish America. Most critically, Spain momentously in a clause that for forevermore altered the course of history granted to the English the Asentio de Negros, a monopoly interest to supply as many as 5,000 slaves a year to the territories of Spanish America. And there was more. I told you, the Brits, you know, came away from the negotiating table, well, like bandits. Proof of the axiom that one can win at the bargaining table that which one is likely to win in battle, on land or on the high seas of life. Spain yielded to England through Navio de Permisio, uh, the clause that permitted them to send the British, to send two ships a year to sell 500 tons of goods each in various port cities in, in the territory of the Americas that was then under Spanish control, Spanish dominion. And the British government was still at war with France, and, and funding that conflict had proven extremely expensive at that moment in history. And the cost of its debt burden was very high. So with the Treaty of Utrecht signed, the British government now saw an opportunity to rid itself of all this expensive debt and lower its cost of capital dramatically. And in 1720, legislation was passed permitting the formation of the South Sea Company. And in doing so, the British government 
cleverly would have its expensive debt retired, taken off the books. Its debt obligations then underwritten and assumed by the South Sea Company and all its investors in return for the assignment of those British monopoly trade rights in the Spanish Americas, plus, you know, interest payments to be earned on that new loan made by South Sea Company uh, investors to the British government. To hungry investors, it appeared to have been a very lucrative investment opportunity, and the deal was, in fact, oversubscribed. Investors wanted in. Even a genius like Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton himself, were lured into the investment of a fortune in the South Sea Company. And through the summer of 1720, the price of shares rose fast and speculation ran rampant. A bubble, a bubble developed. The inevitable crash ensued. I mean, this is like the Dutch tulip craze all over again, right? Right? Financial fortunes were made, financial fortunes were lost, and sadly, a number of suicides among investors were reported. However, the truth of the matter was the real intrinsic value of all these trading rights to the Spanish Americas was insignificant relative to the potential for profits that were to be made or that could be made in direct trading between Britain and mainland Spain itself. A leading financial merchant, merchant in the city of London, um, the financial district, referred to the direct trading opportunity between these two states as the best flower in the garden. So British goods were exported to Cadiz for sale locally or re-exported to the Spanish colonies, you know, with Spanish dye and wools going in the other direction. As for that uh, Asensio de Negros cause, it itself was only marginally profitable and history demonstrates it was only a commercial illusion no matter how famous it may have been. And between 1717 and 1733, only eight ships sailed from Britain to the Americas. I mean, this is not a good thing, but it's only eight ships. The real money to be made was to be earned by shipping smuggled goods that evaded customs officials and the duties and the, uh, the fees attendant to these goods. And demand for such goods from Spanish colonists was huge. And, and it created the conditions for an immensely profitable black mar market to develop and to be taken advantage of by those who were willing to engage in such illegal profiteering. And where there exists demand, economic theories suggest there soon will be generated supply to, sufficient to meet that demand. And in that search for economic equilibrium, excess profits can be generated. Now, forced to accept that smuggling was just, just too lucrative and widespread to be stopped altogether, the Spanish government tried to manage it and sometimes used it as an instrument to shape um, its diplomatic foreign policy. Now, for example, the USA, we never learned this fundamental principle during prohibition or during our ill-fated, misguided, ever-to-fail um, 
war on drugs. You know, 50 years on, it's just such a waste. You know, human nature being what it is, just say no. I mean, it's ludicrous as a as a policy and DE effort, DEA efforts to stem or redefine human behavior you know, it's fruitless in the extreme. I mean, the morals police will always fail. They always will. Now, of course, Utrecht itself, the treaty, had not eliminated the potential for conflict between England and Spain. And in truth, nothing would have. Nothing. So as a result of a low-grade, feverish state of war, um, it broke out again between the two nations between 1727 and 1729. You know, this is interesting. Spain blockaded English, English ships from trading in Spain and Spanish America. And in doing so, they restricted England's merchant marine shipping interests and providers of goods from procuring the high level of profits which accrued from the successful smuggling of valued goods in violation of the various treaties between these two highly competitive nations. But, but, and, and to the fury of the British, during this same period of time, the same time frame, friendships packed to the gills, loaded with contraband, were allowed by the Spanish to pass freely through customs, just slide right through. While British ships were stopped, goods expropriated, and, and they were subjected to duties imposed, you know, fees collected, um, or there were severe restrictions applied to the British merchants themselves. <laughs> You got to ask the question, why were the British collecting the Monopoly game like um, do not pass go card uh, from the Spanish authorities while all the French, you know, skipped on to go and collected the $200 too? I mean, this really pissed off the English and no explanation of Spanish policy made sense to uh, government leaders in England. It just incensed the Brits. And this is why you have war. Such is the nature of conflict. But as, but as further proof positive that international alliances are indeed very, very fickle indeed, Spanish policy suddenly was turned on its ear, reversed during the period of 1733 to 1735 when the War of Polish Succession occurred, when Britain supported Spain, but France would not. You know, international diplomacy demands nations employ trained professionals to serve in the role of amb as ambassadors. Rank amateurs are driven mad by these ever-shifting rules of the game. And, and just as a, you know, like a chess master, you know, must recognize, you know, immediately, a, you know, a king's gambit, uh, the Sicilian defense, the Re Lopez game, Scottish gambit, and, you know, identify, you know, pawn promotion or the possibility and impact of, of a potential castling. Professional, experienced, well-educated, well-trained diplomats under pressure maintain a calm dignity and will discern, distinguish, and assess the complexities of the international diplomatic game.
you know, the diplomat can discern false signaling, um, false attacks, bluffs, traps, sacrificial moves made for later gain. He sees many moves ahead. International diplomats must be masters at the art of deception. Hmm, I think I've heard that before. Not prone to irrational miscalculation, loss of temper, you know, striking out like maddened bulls. They must excel in the long game. This is important. They must not behave as a lunatic would behave. Well, how, how about best exhibited, perhaps, when Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, entered a conference room in which um, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was presiding over some staff meeting, and, and Trump ordered, or tried to order, Tillerson to immediately increase America's nuclear arsenal by a thousand percent. A thousand percent. I, I still, to this day, I hold the belief that not only did Trump not comprehend in the least the global ramifications of this insane order to Tillerson. And let's be perfectly clear. Trump was not conducting a thought exercise designed to promote, you know, out-of-the-box thinking by his country's cabinet members. That was not the case. No, no, nor did Trump have a clue as to the exorbitant, insane price tag that would accompany such a proposed, dramatic, insane increase in our nuclear arsenal. He just didn't. My, and to me, more terrifying to contemplate, if such a thing might be possible in this circumstance, is that I do not believe that Trump understood the meaning of increasing anything by orders of magnitude implied by a thousand percent increase. I don't think he knows what that means. I really don't. And, you know, and the reports, later reports, that Tillerson retorted in front of the assembled professionals to the president that he was a fucking moron. This may indicate that Tillerson had finally had enough as he of the craziness, the instability, as he resigned shortly thereafter. Rapidly shifting diplomacy is a test of wills. And as Kurt Vonnegut has so, so often written, and so it goes. So as we approach now, the very moment of the breakout of the War of Jenkins' year, we hope you will tune in to our next podcast. Hey, thanks for listening. Have a good day. Bye-bye. I slipped from the harbor head out Crystal blue water surrounding me Tap to the wind, taste the sea breeze Tropical heaven on the coral sea A little more rum, I think of my wife What did 
did I do? Have I ruined my life? I tell her I've changed, become a new man. I promise I will, and I know that I can. When did the skies change? When did we turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? The sea's now boiling and I'm getting cold. I've lost my sails, got to find a way home. Alone in my boat, I think of my wife. I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life. From tomorrow, days from the land. Nothing can save me unless fate lends a hand. Storm, it is worse than I no control. The wind and the waves are taking their toll. I look to the stars, there's none I can see. I'm afraid fate, she has answered me. Only moments my story will end. There was a story I wanted to send. Oh, how I dream for the calm of the sea. A beautiful face smiling back at me. The sea is boiling and I'm getting cold. I've lost my sails, got to find a way home. When did the skies change? When did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat, I think of my wife. I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life. When did the skies change? When did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat. I think of my wife, I'm lost in a drift on the high 